Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Advances in Angiostatic Treatment for Retinal Disease, Demystifying Novel Therapeutic Targets, is provided by MedAticus LLC and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to Advances in Angiostatic Treatment for Retinal Disease, Demystifying Novel Therapeutic Targets. I'm David Eichenbaum, Collaborative Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Morsani College of Medicine of the University of South Florida, and I'm Director of Research at Retinovitreous Associates of Florida in Tampa Bay, Florida. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague and good friend, Charlie Wyckoff, Director of Research at Retina Consultants of Texas and Retina Consultants of America, and Deputy Chair of Ophthalmology at the Blanton Eye Institute, Houston Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. Learning objectives which you will enjoy include describing the pathophysiologic mechanisms of emerging disease and treatment combinations, reviewing the latest clinical data for approved and emerging combination treatments, and identifying patients who would potentially be good candidates for these pipeline combination treatments for their neovascular macular degeneration and diabetic macular edema. As an introduction, we're going to talk about topics near and dear to our clinical hearts. First of all, we know that visual impairment is a growing public health issue in the United States. The projection of visual impairment in the United States is for it to increase over the next 30 years. The good news, of course, is that we have job security. The bad news, of course, is that there are going to be a lot of patients coming to us for help, and we are going to see our resources strained with our current armamentarium of therapeutics. Retinal diseases are the leading drivers of this increasing volume of visual impairment in the United States. On the left side, you see projections for diabetic retinopathy in the United States in millions, increasing across all various ethnic groups. And on the right side, you see the projections of age-related macular degeneration in the United States in millions, increasing in a similar proportion. These both combine to increase the projections for visual impairment in the United States over the next generation. Current first-line therapies for neovascular macular degeneration and diabetic macular edema have demonstrated safety and efficacy in hallmark trials. We have four broadly available agents, including bevacizumab, which is used off-label, ranibizumab, aflibercept, and brolicizumab, Brolicizumab is currently only approved on-label for neovascular macular degeneration with ongoing investigations for diabetic eye disease. All of these drugs provide reasonable safety and reasonable efficacy, but all of them require a relatively frequent dosing interval to achieve those very good results. We know that the greatest unmet need in retinal disease, as reported by us, retina specialists, in the Preferences and Trends Survey recently, as recently as 2018-2019, are that we need a reduced 
treatment burden for common retinal diseases. We need more efficacious therapies that address non-response or incomplete responders. On the right side of this slide, we see that there's a direct correlation both in diabetic macular edema and in neovascular macular degeneration between injection frequency and visual acuity across many different studies with a variety of different treatment schema. The solution is probably targeting novel mediators of retinal disease. Currently, we only target vascular endothelial growth factor, which has been a boon to our patients and a fantastic target as a primary treatment. However, it is not where we stop, it's where we're starting. And that's what we're going to talk about when we discuss novel targets for treatment of retinal disease. Diseases that threaten vision, including diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular edema, and neovascular age-related macular degeneration all involve abnormal growth of new blood vessels in the retina that are unstable and prone to leakage and rupture. In neovascular macular degeneration, this leakage is seen on retinal fundus photographs, fluorescein angiography, and OCT images as fluid in the interretinal, subretinal, and sub-RPE space. In diabetic macular edema, leakage can likewise be seen on OCT. In diabetic retinopathy, neovascularization can be seen on fundus photography, fluorescein angiography, and OCTA, and in the worst cases, as vitreous hemorrhage. Retinal vessel homeostasis of which vascular stability is a key component, is a complex process tightly regulated by multiple cell types and molecular mediators. Retinal vascular endothelial cells and pericytes take part in regulation of angiogenesis and also in maintenance of the blood retinal barrier, which is important for the health of other retinal cell types. These cells have a variety of transmembrane receptors that respond to changes in the concentration of different ligands and cytokines in the retinal microenvironment and modulate the process of new blood vessel growth. As retinal physicians, we are most familiar with the ligand vascular endothelial growth factor A, VEGFA, thanks to the groundbreaking work of Ferrara started more than two decades ago. This work paved the way for the investigation, approval, and usage of anti-VEGF therapies for neovascular macular degeneration, diabetic macular edema, and most recently, diabetic retinopathy. In response to hypoxia, the expression of VEGFA increases, and it binds to the transmembrane receptor VEGF receptor 2, which is primarily expressed on endothelial cells. This binding triggers an intracellular signaling cascade resulting in increased endothelial cell proliferation and migration, new vessel growth, and increased vessel permeability. Traditional anti-VEGF therapies halt new vessel growth, even in the contents of hypoxia and elevated levels of VEGFA by disrupting the binding of VEGFA to its receptor. Bevacizumab, ranibizumab, aflibercept, and brolicizumab 
are antibodies, fusion proteins, or antibody fragments that bind to VEGFA and neutralize its effects. VEGFA is not the only mediator of retinal vessel stability. In the last several years, the interplay among VEGF family members and receptors, as well as additional mediators of endothelial cell junction integrity and inflammation, has been increasingly appreciated and has become specific targets of investigational therapies. Many of these therapies target two or more mediators of angiogenesis and vascular leakage. Local ocular corticosteroids have been used for decades to suppress multiple pathologic cytokines, but their targeting is nonspecific, and there are significant adverse events associated with corticosteroid use. A flibercept is a decoy receptor composed of domains from both VEGF receptor 1 and VEGF receptor 2, which binds VEGF A as well as VEGF B and placenta growth factor sequestering these molecules away from VEGF receptor 1 and VEGF receptor 2. In this way, a flibercept represents the first successful application of dual targeting in one molecule. It has been theorized that these additional activities might confer further therapeutic benefit versus ranibizumab and bevacizumab. More recently, other VEGFs have been recognized for their contribution to the process of angiogenesis. Interestingly, there is an increase in aqueous VEGF-C concentration as the direct result of VEGF-A inhibition using bevacizumab. The investigational molecule OPT302 acts in a similar way to flibercept, except that it is composed of VEGF receptor 3 binding domains and binds and sequesters VEGF-C and VEGF-D away from endogenous receptors. When used in conjunction with ranibizumab or flibercept, it is thought that synergistic suppression of neovascular growth and leakage will occur, improving outcomes for neovascular macular degeneration and diabetic macular edema over VEGF-A suppression alone. Inhibition of angiogenesis can be achieved not only by preventing the interaction between VEGF family members and their receptors, but also by inhibiting the downstream consequences of that interaction. Although the VEGF binding domain of the transmembrane protein VEGF receptor 2 is located extracellularly, the activity of multiple vasogenic cytokines is located on intracellular domains. This diffuse pathologic activity can be inhibited by several investigational tyrosine kinase inhibitors, including GB102, a depot formulation of sunitinib, which inhibits angiogenesis by binding VEGF receptors and other related receptor types, CLSAX, a supracoroidally injected formulation of, of axitinib, which inhibits angiogenesis by blocking VEGF and platelet-derived growth factor receptors. OTX-TKI, an intravitreal hydrogel-based axitinib implant. And PAN-90806, a topical tyrosine kinase inhibitor formulation that inhibits downstream effects of VEGF receptor 2. Finally, there are other distinct pathways that have important roles in the regulation of angiogenesis. In the study I mentioned previously, demonstrating that VEGF-A inhibition with bevacizumab led to an increase in VEGF-C, several other molecules were upregulated, including angiopoietin-2, also known as ANG2. 
angiopoietin 1 and 2 interact with the Thai 2 receptor to regulate vessel stability as shown on the right-hand side of the slide. Thai 2 is a tyrosine kinase with immunoglobulin and epidermal growth factor homology domains. Under normal conditions, the Thai 2 pathway is kept active by the binding of ANG1 and maintains vascular stability through the stabilization of intracellular junctions between endothelial cells modulated by VE cadherin and through downregulation of the VEGF2 expression. In disease states such as diabetes, neovascular macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and proliferative diabetic retinopathy, the concentration of ANG2 is elevated in the vitreous, whereas the concentration of ANG1 is constant in these states. As a consequence, ANG2 competitively displaces ANG1 at the TI2 receptor, deactivating the TI2 receptor and inhibiting its vessel-stabilizing activity. ANG2 also potentiates the vascular destabilizing effects of VEGF and can also destabilize intracellular junctions directly by promoting internalization of VE cadherin, a molecule that is an important component of cell-to-cell junctions. ANG2 is also upregulated by inflammation and perpetuates a hyperinflammatory state by recruiting inflammatory cells into inflamed tissue. This could be particularly relevant in DME, in which inflammation may play a role in disease progression and resistance to anti-VEGF monotherapy. Together, these attributes of ANG2 highlight its importance as a therapeutic target in retinal disease. Therapies that target ANG2 have the potential to restore vascular stability by restoring the function of the TI2 pathway. Furisimab is a bispecific antibody that targets both ANG2 and VEGF-A, and it has been shown to restore the activity of the TI2 pathway, inhibition of the VEGF receptor pathway, and restoration of VE cadherin-modulated cell-to-cell junctions, and thus abrogating vascular permeability, choroidal neovascularization lesion leakage, and inflammation in vitro and in vivo. AXT107 is a type 4 collagen-derived peptide that suppresses angiogenesis through interaction with integrins, which associate with and regulate the localization and activity of transmembrane receptors such as VEGF receptor 2 and TI2. When AXT107 binds integrins, the association with VEGF receptor 2 is disrupted, leading to inhibition of VEGF receptor 2 signaling and increased internalization and degradation of VEGF receptor 2. AXT107 also binds integrins associated with TI2 receptors, and when this association is disrupted, TI2 receptors cluster, and as a result of this clustering, ANG2 begins to act as a TI2 agonist, similar to how ANG1 acts, inhibiting angiogenesis, vessel instability, and inflammation, and instead supporting vascular health and stability and inhibiting the VEGF receptor 2 pathway. Several other 
Immunomodulatory pathways are targets of early phase investigational therapies. The calicrean kinin system is a potential target of therapies to reduce inflammation and vascular permeability associated with retinal disease. Interestingly, in vivo studies demonstrate that this mechanism functions independently of the VEGF pathway to induce retinal edema. Inhibition of this pathway has had mixed success with several clinical trials ending in failure. THR149 is a plasma calocrean peptide inhibitor that reduces vascular leakage and is still in development for DME. AKST4290 targets eotaxin, a chemokine that has elevated neovascular macular degeneration and might benefit patients whose disease is refractory to anti-VEGF treatment or is an adjunct to anti-VEGF therapy. ICON-1 is a recombinant modified factor VIII peptide bound to the FC portion of human immunoglobulin G1. It binds tissue factor, which is highly expressed in neovascular tissue and age-related macular degeneration. Activation of tissue factor in neovascular macular degeneration leads to increased inflammation and increased VEGF expression in a positive feedback loop. Together, these pathways represent the targets of the next generation of therapies for neovascular retinal diseases. In the next section, we will discuss recent clinical trial results for some of these therapies with my good friend, Charlie Wyckoff. David, that was a fantastic summary of some incredible biology and a lot of really exciting work going on in clinical trials. Over the next 10 minutes, I'm going to talk about recent clinical trial data for novel therapies focusing on later phase data. In particular, as David mentioned, there's a lot of programs looking at novel therapeutics in this space. But today, because of time, we're going to focus on trials that have data from phase three or are actively enrolling in phase three. And in particular, we're going to talk about two molecules, ferisumab and OPT302. So first, let's unpack ferisumab, and there's a lot to go through here, so this will be most of our time. Ferisumab now has data from phase three programs in both DME and neovascular AMD. This slide summarizes the phase two DME program with ferisumab called Boulevard. Remember, this was a monthly ferisumab trial with two doses of ferisumab compared to 0.3 milligram ranibizumab, in which we saw robust anatomic outcomes with ferisumab and visual acuity outcomes, no matter how you looked at this data, ferisumab appeared to be a stronger agent than ranibizumab. Based on that phase two data that was quite strong, ferisumab was then studied in the paired phase three trials, Yosemite and Rhine. These were randomized, double-masked, multi-center global studies comparing ferisumab to a flibercept. The key inclusion criteria are listed here. Essentially, patients had to have center-involved DME with visual loss, with visual acuity between 2040 to 2320. This is the design of the Phase three program. These were identical trials, Yosemite and Rhine. Again, these were global programs. Each of these trials had three arms. The comparator here, the gold standard, was a flibercept given five monthly doses, followed by every eight-week dosing, through the primary endpoint that we'll define in a moment. Then there were two arms of ferisumab, and patients were randomized equally to one of these three arms. 
There was fixed dosing for risimab shown at top, six milligram for risimab given for six monthly doses, followed by every eight-week dosing through one year. And then there was for risimab given according to what we've called a PTI or personalized treatment interval. Essentially, this was four monthly loading doses, and then essentially the application of a treat and extend protocol within the confines of a double mass uh, trial through the one-year primary endpoint. The one-year primary endpoint is shaded here in yellow, which was changed from visual acuity at year one, defined as the average from weeks 48, 52, and 56. And ultimately, all of these arms will continue the same dosing through 100 a week. The primary endpoint was met in this DME program in essentially um, showing equivalent visual acuity outcomes between a flibercept and ferisumab. Ferisumab given either every eight weeks after loading doses or according to a personalized treatment interval. The anatomic data here, however, told a slightly different story. Here on the top of the slide, you see the visual acuity outcomes. Again, very similar, comparable anatomic, uh, excuse me, visual outcomes between each of the three arms in both of these trials. And then at the bottom, you see central subfield thickness or CST changes over time. And what you're seeing is very strong and appearing to be better drying with ferisumab, either given fixed Q8 or according to PTI compared to the aflibercept arms. These anatomic benefits appear to extend to specific fluid uh, cavities. Specifically, we look at intraretinal fluid in the top graphs here. We see superior intraretinal fluid resolution with furisimab across both Yosemite and Rhine at the weeks 48, 52, and 56 endpoints. Whereas in the bottom graphs here, you see comparable efficacy of a flibercept to furisimab with resolution of subretinal fluid. From a safety perspective, these are the common adverse events through the one-year endpoint. We saw no difference in the um, outcomes of these safety events between furisimab and a flibercept. This slide um, we put in specifically to talk about inflammation. Inflammation has become quite an important topic in the development of drugs across the vitreoretinal space. And here we're just being very descriptive. I do not believe there are any um, meaningful difference here between the um, drugs, but the percentages are important to quote specifically, and they are 0.32 to 0.96% of any IOI with a flibercept compared to 0.63 to 2.24% with any IOI with furisumab. There were no cases of retinal vasculitis in any of these DME patients. Pivoting now to talk about furisumab and neovascular AMD, these were the two phase two trials that led the groundwork for the phase three program in neovascular AMD Avenue and Stairway. The key finding from these phase two studies was actually the signal for durability. Remember, Stairway looked at intervals of dosing out to every 12 or even every 16 weeks and saw comparable visual acuity outcomes compared to monthly ranibizumab. Based on these phase two trials, the phase three program, the Tanaya and Lucerne trials were designed. These were, again, randomized, double-masked, global studies designed to compare a flibercept here to furisumab. Key inclusion criteria were visual acuity of approximately 2032 to 2320 with treatment-naive CNV due to neovascular AMD with a center involving lesion. Here's the trial design. Again, these were identical 
trials across Denia and Lucerne. The comparator arm here, again, a Flibercept. Remember in DME, they were five monthly loading doses consistent with the global label. Here, there are three monthly loading doses with the Flibercept, again, consistent with the global label, and then every eight-week dosing. In comparison, patients randomized to farisumab received four monthly loading doses and and were subsequently treated either every eight weeks, every 12 weeks, or every 16 weeks, according to a key time point of disease activity assessment at weeks 20 and 24. Specifically, if there was an indication of increased um, fluid status or an indication of decreased vision or a new hemorrhage, then patients were um, continued at a specific interval um, with the longest potential interval um, being every 16 weeks. Again, here, as very much seen in the DME program, the primary endpoint of visual acuity was met with non-inferiority between perisumab and aflibercept in both of these programs. The longitudinal visual acuity trajectories are shown at the top, a very similar, essentially identical visual acuity outcomes between the um, drugs. And at the bottom, again, you see very comparable anatomic outcomes here in the neovascular AMD uh, population. From a safety perspective, the common adverse events are shown here, again, with no meaningful differences between the um, different medications. And then calling out specifically IOI here because of the importance across our field in the percentages of any IOI event in the aflibercept arms were between 0.6 and 1.8%. And in farisumab range from 1.5 to 2.4%. This slide is important to digest. This includes all four of these farisumab phase three trials, the DME program on the left and the, and the AMD program on the right. And what you see is the indication of durability. So the gray portions of these pie charts represent the proportions of patients at every 16-week dosing in the PTI arm in Yosemite and Rhine, and in the fixed Q16-week dosing arm based on disease activity assessments in Tanaya and Lucerne. And you see remarkably similar percentages. When you add that to the part of the pie chart in blue, you see that across the DME and the neovascular AMD programs, between 70 and 80% of patients are achieving every three to four months dosing by the end of one year quite a meaningful signal for durability, again, within the confines of this phase three um, programs. Pivoting now and now discussing OPT302. This is another medication with quite promising data. We do not have phase three data for this, for this molecule yet, but we do have very robust um, uh, phase 2B data that will that we'll digest. Um, as David went through, this is a molecule that we hope is additive to VEGFA inhibition um, by blocking additional family members within the VEGF uh, group. The primary outcome of this phase two trial was mean change in visual acuity at a week 24. The design of this trial was 366 patients, a quite large double-mast randomized phase 2B trial. Patients with visual acuity of approximately 2060 or worse were randomized equally to either monthly ranibizumab, 0.5 milligrams, or OPT302 plus ranibizumab, either given in the high dose, 2 milligrams, or the lower dose, 0.5 milligrams of, of OPT302. And the primary endpoint was at um, week 24. And here was the primary outcome data, quite promising for the field. 
Um, on the left here, we saw visual acuity benefit with the high-dose OPT302 plus ranibizumab gaining over 14 letters of visual acuity compared to 10.8 letters with ranibizumab monotherapy. And on the right, again, you see improved anatomic outcomes with the addition of OPT302 to ranibizumab, suggesting there may be an additive benefit of VEGFC and B blockade with OPT302 in addition to anti-VEGF-A monotherapy. From a safety perspective, there were no signals of safety concern with the addition of OPT302 in addition to ranibizumab. And this was particularly relevant to this study because this involved two separate injections where patients received ranibizumab, waited, and then received a second injection, either sham in the ranibizumab monotherapy arm or OPT302 in the two um, uh, additive treatment arms. Based on this positive phase 2B data, OPT302 has moved forward into two global phase 3 programs called SHORE and COAST, in which um, uh, OPT302 is being combined in SHORE with ranibizumab dosing and being combined with a flibercept in um, a COAST. These are both going to be two-year programs with the primary efficacy endpoint being at the end of one year. With that, I would love to engage my colleague and dear friend, David Eisenbaum, for some questions. Well, that was a fantastic presentation. That kind of took the basic science we talked about in the first half of the uh, presentation and brought it to where we're actually applying it in later phase clinical trials. And uh, I'm very excited about both the late phase furosemab and the late phase program with OPT. 302. Both um, have very encouraging results. And uh, let's start with furosemab. I frankly think that given the uh, durability results, furosemab, pending uh, its real-world experience, at least our early real-world experience, has the potential to be a first-line drug in common retinal disease. Uh, it did show about half the patients up to 16 weeks in all disease states across four studies, and it showed 70% of patients at 12 weeks or more across four studies for neovascular macular degeneration and diabetic macular edema. Those are pretty impressive numbers. What do you think? If verisimab performed like it looks like it could in the real world, would that be a first-line agent for you? I think you summarized that beautifully, David. And, you know, um, two thoughts, really. I mean, first of all, what a tremendous amount of energy, effort, and resources went into these programs. I mean, to have two global phase three programs read out simultaneously is, is, is such a, a rare event. I mean, we've never had anything like it in, in retina, for sure. Um, and it really is exciting to be able to see the data from two programs, right? Because if you saw the durability in one program, you might think, well... It might be an outlier or who knows, but to see this durability across two programs that does feel a little bit different than what I see daily in my clinical practice with, with patients with mm -hmm. current standard therapy is quite promising. I think it's exciting. You know, our field has, has really needed a more durable, safe agent for a long time. And we were all excited by Roxizumab and Abicapar. And, you know, hopefully those agents may still come to be widely used if we can figure out some of the safety issues. Um, but right now, they are unfortunately sort of minimally used because of those safety concerns. This could fill that void. So I have a lot of patients that look forward to 
trying to get drier, trying to get longer intervals. This is hopefully going to be meaningful for the field. And that's the aspirational spirit. That's exactly what we were hoping when brolicizumab came out. I was very brolicizumab avid as a talk yeah. investigator. Uh, yeah. And, I, and I've, I do utilize it, but I utilize it minimally in less than um, 5% of my patients all told uh, yeah. in you know, in this point in 2021, now you struck on a really compelling point. Treatment naive is one thing, and those patients come to us every day, but the vast majority of all of our clinics are the treatment experienced patients. And those are the ones that we usually turn loose on new agents, especially the tougher cases. And I have those same patients. I'm going to look at virtually all of my patients who I can't extend past six or eight weeks and talk to them about the option of trying for frisimab and going longer in neovascular macular degeneration or diabetic macular edema, similar to what I did with brolicizumab until Macular Society um, 2020, when the uh, IOI data really began to come out. But I really right. think that there's a large proportion of established patients who are looking for this. I completely agree. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a home run. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. a cure. You know, we talk about gene therapy, and that's very exciting, and, and these other things that are that are really sort of amazingly game-changing agents. This doesn't have to be a cure. If it can just bump those every six weeks out to eight or ten weeks, that's a huge value add for that mm-hmm. patient and their family. Yeah. And so I, I really, even incremental benefit can have a big translation of value for our patients. OPT302, that's an interesting one because the data is earlier, right? We're looking right. at read-out phase two data. Um, And there's been promise for combination for a long time with only this this and two bispecific benefit coming all the way through phase three. You know, we did see some proof of concept with Regeneron's phase two anti-and two co-formulation, Nesvacumab. So that's at least some consistency. OPT302 is really compelling because it is something else standing out on its own. But we saw that similar compelling phase two data with anti-PDGF. So yeah. I'm not sold on OPT302 yet, but I'm encouraged and looking yeah. forward to enrolling that phase three trial for something yeah. else other than the and two tied pathway that I could leverage perhaps and get even more options for patients. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, I think we... There's durability plays, there's efficacy plays, and there's definitely an overlap there, right? We all realize that if you undertreat patients and they don't do well, that's not an efficacy problem, that's a durability problem. There's definitely an overlap, but the basic scientist in me and you, David, is is enthralled by this concept of, yeah, these additional growth factors and cytokines, like you mentioned, calicrine, all these other biologies, these have got to be relevant to this disease process. And you know, maybe one molecule like frisimab will, will be the treatment we need and, and we can stop innovating, but I don't think so. I, I really see a future. It's not easy to create this future, but a future where many of these cytokines are targeted, maybe with multiple agents in a very targeted way based on aqueous humor profiling on an individual basis. Who knows where this field will take us, but I really look forward to being able to parse out these individual pathways that are meaningful, maybe in certain subpopulations. And there are so many new approaches to this space, but I think it's exciting. We need it. You know, the anti-VEGF therapies have created an incredibly high bar, 
But there's no question in my mind that we can do better than that. And I, and I look forward to that future for our patients and to continue to build it um, with you, David, and the rest of the space. Thank you, Charlie, for the opportunity to work with you on this program. What a privilege. Thanks, David. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by MedAticus LLC and is supported by an independent educational grant from Genentech Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.